Good morning. I have a really important question to ask all of you. It's going to be a raise your hand poll to start off the sermon this morning. What is your preference? If you are an artificial tree person, please raise your hand. Not want it all day long, artificial tree. If you are a real tree person, please raise your hand. All right, the real trees have it. I know for some of you, you would like to be real tree people, but allergies and stuff just keep you from that. That's all right. I am a real tree person. Always have been. Lord willing, always will be. Uh, there is just something about that scent in the house that just makes it feel like Advent. Last year, when we bought our Christmas tree, we had such a good experience, picked such a good tree that drank water probably until just before Christmas, and we got it on December 1st, that I pulled out my phone last year in the middle of December, and I said, that was such a good tree. We were going back to that same place on the same Saturday of just before Advent. We're going to go try to go at the same time of day and get one right off the truck because I have to have a fresh tree. So we did that yesterday, and it's in our house right now. Uh, it, it's just something that makes Advent come together, in my mind. It's, it's that anticipation of Christmas, that the, getting the tree early, not as early as some of you, Joey Rosado, um, but getting the tree early, guilty, getting the tree early on in Advent helps set up that rhythm that leads to Christmas. There is something wonderful that is coming. Latin, or I'm sorry, Adventus, which the word Advent comes from, is the Latin word that comes from parousia, the Greek word for the second coming of Christ. So as we celebrate Advent, what Jeremy said earlier is true. It's not just looking to Christmas. It is looking towards the second coming of Christ to earth that has not yet happened yet. So, if you're looking at Advent, these coming four weeks before Christmas, and you're just kind of caught up in the season, or maybe you're even just trying to really dedicate yourself to remembering the reason for the season, Jesus being born, I would say yes, but you're missing a significant part. The reason for Advent, and yes, I would say even the reason for Christmas, is to create expectation in us not only remembrance. Christ is coming back. Advent whispers of echoes of the past even while triumphantly proclaiming who is to come. The tree bought yesterday was a dud. I'll repeat that again. The tree we bought yesterday was a dud. I woke up this morning. No water was out of the base. That happens, doesn't it? We might be going back to Home Depot this afternoon to try to return it. I don't know if they'll take it back or not. But we get all geared up for Advent. We get all geared up for Christmas, but January still comes, doesn't it? And we still kind of feel like something has passed and we missed it. My prayer and purpose for these three weeks, today and the next two, is that Advent will stir in us to be people who eagerly await to see the face of Christ. That we would long to see Him face to face in a way that none of us ever have. 
And this morning, we're actually going to be talking about death. The way that most believers in Christ have first glimpsed Jesus ever since he ascended back to heaven. He has not come back yet, so we haven't had the chance to see him come through the clouds, though we will talk about that next week and expand on it in the third week. But most people, and most of us, unless the Lord returns first, will see him first, not coming through the clouds, but as we go through the veil of death. He is waiting there for us. Let's pray. Jesus created us an expectation that we can't drum up ourselves. It is only by work of Your Spirit that we would have our eyes opened to long for You. To have our hearts sense a need for God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would begin to do that this morning. Begin to stir our hearts to look for you, Jesus. To wait for you, even as we remember death. In your great name we pray. Amen. Matthew McCullough writes this. If you belong to a church in Puritan New England, you probably gathered for worship in a wood-framed building walled with simple white clapboard. You sat on bare wooden pews, surrounded by clear glass windows that let in the light and looked out on God's good world. The space was sparse, unadorned, and free of all images except those created by the words of the preacher. Puritan worship spaces were simple by design. Contrast that simplicity with what you would have seen on your way into the church building. If you were a Puritan going to church on a Sunday morning, you would have passed through a churchyard full of gravestones carved with elaborate, sometimes jarring images. These stones survive as one of early America's most popular and powerful art forms. To modern tastes, the images often border on grotesque. There are skulls flanked by wings, skeletons holding siths, and perhaps most commonly, hourglasses running out of time. These stones aimed for your imagination. They meant to make death sensible. On some of these stones, you would probably find two Latin words etched among the images. Memento mori. Memento mori. Roughly translated, the phrase means remember death. With these stones and in their sermons and in a range of practical writings, the Puritans were drawing from an old Christian tradition that sought to bring the perspective of death into everyday life. I don't mean preparation for one's one's own imminent death, though that too was a time-honored tradition. I mean the perspective that death, as unshakable reality, the perspective it brings to life in the meantime. I would say to us this morning, to not think of death is not healthy. To not think of death is not healthy. And I would agree with the Puritans that to think on death can be life-giving and even life-shaping. So let's go on a journey this morning and explore how that might be so. It is important to remember death rightly. Okay? If you you don't, you, you have these extremes. On the one hand, 
well, yeah, sure, I'm going to die someday, but eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's one extreme. The other extreme, when you consider death, may be a morose, self-protecting, fearful, lock-myself-in-my-room sort of view of life. Either go out there and party hard or protect myself because I don't know when the Grim Reaper is outside my door. Those are two extremes. Where are you on that spectrum of death this morning? Do you think much of it? Likely there are some of us who are on one of those extremes this morning or debating possibly being on one of those extremes. Even more likely is that we have been on one of those extremes or both of those extremes at certain days, weeks, months, or even years, seasons of our lives. And we would be foolish this morning to think that no one in this room is living in one of those extremes this morning. But there's hope. The hope is to come. I also want to say this about this journey that we're going to undertake. I also realize that we all have varying experiences of death. Some of you have never been to a funeral. That's okay. If no one that you love has died, that's just the way that it is. Others of you have been to funerals that feel like they almost define your life. And those funerals are in the middle of a whole mess, maybe of prolonged sickness that led up to that death or the sudden shock of death that kept you from having that final conversation. Hi, Miguel. Good morning. Having that final conversation, asking those last questions, saying goodbye. And I know that some of you have experienced that even very closely and dearly recently, even in the last few months or the last couple of years, and you're still walking through those times of sorrow. You're feeling the sting of death even this morning. Our personal experiences with death are as unique as we are. And this morning, sorry, but we can't address every single aspect of what death means or the circumstances surrounding it or how we should think of death well, but I, I, I want to give you a few resources, okay? Uh, you can listen to it again later if you need to get back, if you need to hear these clearly again, or you can ask me after the service. Some things to read. The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis would be one. Remembering Death is a book that came out a few months ago by Matthew McCullough. One Minute After You Die by Erwin Lutzer. And a blog post that was actually put up just this last week by a good friend of ours, um, Nathan Carter, who pastors Emmanuel Baptist in the, the near south side. And he wrote about when a pastor commits suicide. Okay, four excellent, excellent resources for you to go to if you have some questions that aren't answered today. That being said, I want to condense this meditation on death into two parts that help us to remember death rightly. First is a biblical theology of death so we can think of where death started and where death is going. And then second of all, a transformed view of death. 
let me just say this from the outset before we get into this biblical theology. There is hope in death for the believer in Christ. There is sure hope in death for the believer in Christ. The sure hope of seeing Jesus face to face. Here we go with the biblical theology. Where did death come from and where is it going? Part of understanding that is to go back to Genesis and understand who we are as humans. What is the stuff that we're made of? Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Yes, you and I are all made in the image of God. What does that mean? There are different theories about different thoughts about what that means to be made in the image of God. Is it a functional relationship with Him? I would say this morning that it's actually a substantive relationship with Him. See, God, the spiritual, makes the physical. God, the spiritual, makes the physical. And in Genesis, as He makes man in His own image, He breathes into Adam. And then He forms Eve. There is this substance that God gives every single human being. It's, it's what sets us apart from the rest of creation, but also puts us in a special position, a special posture towards God that the rest of creation does not have. All humans are made by God of eternal substance. We are literally made for eternity whether we believe it or not. This is the physical and this is the soul. A unity of the Imago Dei, the image of God. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16-17, to 17, God is speaking to Adam and He says, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God, having made eternal beings able to live for eternity as they mirror His image, now says there is a way that this will stop. There is a way where death will enter creation and that is through your disobedience to My Word. The consequence of sin is death from the very mouth of God. Well, a few verses later in Genesis 3, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now hear this. We often skip over this. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. See, the first thing the serpent said was, can you really trust God? Is his word actually true? But the first out and out lie that the deceiver ever told humanity was, you shall not surely die. Hear me clearly on this. To remember that you will die, to truly consider and remember that reality is healthy for you and for me 
Because when you remember that you will die, you are believing God's word. You are saying, yes, God said that in sin, I will die. This is a sinful world. I am a sinful person. There is physical death to come. But it is also, I should say and, and it is also healthy because when you remember that you will die, you are choosing not to believe Satan's lie. You are choosing to believe that what God says is true, and you are choosing to believe that what Satan said is a lie. That's a double dose of health right there. So let me ask, have you considered your mortality? So the average life expectancy in America is between 77 and 80. So let's just call it 80. I was born in 1976. If I kind of do a radius from there, chronologically backwards, 80 years before that, 1896. 80 years forward, somebody help me out here, 2056. The reality is, I'm probably not going to see 2060. Maybe not 2070. Maybe not 2020. The tragic shooting at Mercy Hospital. Only one of those people thought he was going to die that day. Tomorrow is not promised. Tomorrow is not promised. And we do well to remember that we will die. We continue on, Genesis 3, 20-24. Adam calls his wife Eve the mother of all living. This is after they have fallen. They are now walking in the shadow of death. It just began as Eve ate and passed it on to Adam who also ate. They are now walking in the shadow of death. And it is the shadow that we continue to walk under as people today. So Adam calls Eve the mother of all the living. It's, it's, it's this expectation, this hope, this anticipation that their line will continue even though they have sinned. And then God provides them animal skins. Perhaps the first death of a living thing is at the hands of God so that He could cover the shame of Adam and Eve and their nakedness. But hear this. Then, after doing this, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He doesn't finish the sentence. It was too horrible to consider that Adam and Eve could eat from the other tree, the tree they had feasted on, the tree of life, that they would now reach out and take again from that and then be relegated to being stuck in their sin forever. Too sad for the sentence to even be finished. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Death is a gift. There is grace to death because we no longer, we don't have to be stuck in our sin for eternity. There is a day when we will die. And this also shows the universality of death. No one ever survives. No one ever walks away. It's more sure than taxes. No one survives. No matter how healthy you're feeling right now, no matter how virile you're feeling right now, no matter, no matter, each of us will go to the grave at some point. The Old Testament then continues. Where is death going? It continues from Abraham to David to the prophets with death at the center. God brings judgment on Israel and the surrounding nations for their sin. He also gives them a sacrificial system that allowed for the forgiveness of sins and also looked forward to a final sacrifice. A final blood sacrifice. They were longing for God to provide a way to be finally, fully forgiven and freed from the shadow of darkness, the shadow of death, according to Isaiah 9, verse 2. But that goes on for generations and generations and generations and generations and death and life and death and birth and life and death is the constant cycle the people of Israel lived through. And they began to wait, continued to wait. And finally, around 2,000 years ago, Jesus arrives. God in human flesh. Simeon the prophet was in the temple and he declared when he saw baby Jesus, he said, to the sunrise who shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Simeon immediately recognized he is the one that can deliver us from the shadow. As he grows up and begins his ministry, Jesus in Matthew 4.16 himself declares that he is the fulfillment of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 9. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And he said, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. But what message did Jesus have to bring? If you go to the book of John, you see Jesus working as the sole physician, walking among the people, asking questions, being asked a lot of questions. But Jesus walks through the book of John as a sole physician, seeking to save those who are sick in their sin. In John 8, He says this, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But I am going away, and you will seek Me? I am going away, and you will seek Me? And you will die in your sin.
Where, am I, where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will certainly die in your sins. Did you hear Jesus, the soul physician's prognosis? Death in sin. Physical and spiritual death. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. I was reading an article earlier this week by Dr. Leonard L. Berry. He did a significant study on patient care at the Mayo Clinic, specifically people that were diagnosed with cancer. Following up on someone else's work that had found that kindness, kindness in treatment was a great boon to gaining health. He went to the Mayo Clinic, a very successful cancer treatment hospital, and he observed what sort of kindness they showed. Here are four things that he suggested. Deep listening. Deep listening. Talking about the medical professionals, they said, we cannot be afraid of the deep conversations with patients regarding what is important to them and their treatment. Empathy was another type of kindness. Being able to enter into the pain of the patients, their feelings, what they were going through, even though they as medical professionals were not themselves sick. Generous acts. One patient said, the two-minute hug that the surgeon gave me made a difference in my recovery. And gentle honesty. Tell me the truth, but tell it with grace. Take it easy. Give me reality, not over-optimism, but give me support in that reality. Can I just tell you this is Jesus? Can I just tell you this is Jesus? The Jesus that walked here on earth and listened to people. You can tell in the Gospels because he asks follow-up questions to them. He hears and sees and knows what they need and he acts upon it. He deeply listened. He showed empathy, able to get into the feelings of those that he was serving, loving, and teaching performed wondrous, generous acts demonstrating that the kingdom of God was a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of generosity that came to save those who were terminally ill in their sin. And he had gentle honesty, particularly with those whose hearts were soft. Gentle honesty, speak the truth but speak it with grace. It was the definition of Jesus at the beginning of John. He came full of grace and truth. This is Jesus. 
But Jesus was not only the sole physician, he himself was the cure. He himself was the remedy. He himself came down and says this in John 11 to Martha after her brother had just passed away, Lazarus. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before I get to the next line, you have to understand that the first 10 chapters of John, you see this back and forth, back and forth between people who said they believed, but when things got too rough, they walked away. Or they came expecting Jesus to just meet their needs, be generous to me, Jesus, but as soon as he started speaking generous truth to them, they walked away. And Jesus knew them. He knew that their belief was not genuine belief in all of who he was. But here he puts that question to Martha, a good friend. Martha, whose brother was in the grave four days hence. Martha, who I'm sure was expecting, if Jesus was just here, Lazarus would be alive still. We're not friends like that. But Jesus puts the pointed question to her. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. The Greek word for Messiah, who the Jews had been longing for. The one who was going to deliver them from the shadow of death. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This morning, I am not the doctor, the sole physician. I am not the cure. But Jesus, in His own words, brings His diagnosis and Himself as the cure to us this morning. And so I want to plead as a spiritual medical professional, if you will, someone who has also been sick, continues to be sick, but knows the remedy, the full cure of Christ, can I plead with you gently but truthfully if you don't know Christ, believe in Christ today. Believe in Christ today. You might say, well, I'm, I'm just going to ignore my condition. I'm not really sure about this sin thing. I got a lot of guilt going on. If you got guilt going on, you know why? It's because you sinned against the God who made you for Himself. So don't ignore your condition or you will die in your sin. Well, I'm going to find some other opinions. Don't seek other opinions. You will die in your sin. I'm going to look for some other remedies to this guilt, try to get this sin thing off of me. No, without Jesus, you will die in your sin. Maybe I'll just go over to this side of the spectrum. Live, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. Okay, live it up while I can. Indulge your condition, you will die in your sin. Will you dismiss the one who is both the physician and came to give you himself as the cure? The remedy for your spiritual cancer? If you dismiss him, 
you will die in your sin. We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We don't just get by. We're all born with a spiritual cancer. We are the real Christmas tree in a sense. Cut down, looks alive, might even smell good, brings joy to relationships and life. But even if you pick a good tree, that thing's dead. Some shorter, some longer. It's dead. It's not alive anymore. It might be real, but it's not alive. I plead with you, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, you need Him as your remedy. You need Him to take His sin upon you as He did at the cross for all who will believe in Him so that He could be the full, sufficient Savior. He came and He took the cancer upon Himself so that you could be healed. And by His stripes, we are healed. This is who Jesus is, the physician and the cure. I plead with you with gentle honesty, don't Walk away from Him. Don't seek other remedies. He is the cure. Where is death going? Revelation 1, 17-18. When I saw Him, this is John writing here, I fell at His feet as though dead. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Death belongs to Jesus. There is no death that is outside of His perfect rule. In Christ, death is no longer a dark, voiceless specter with a bony hand pointing ruthlessly to your tombstone. Death belongs to Jesus. For all those who are in Him, they can experience and rethink death in a way that is life-giving and freeing. For all those who are in Christ, those who have believed on Him as Martha did, it is simply, death is simply the veil that separates your now from your then. From walking with Christ in faith to walking with Christ in sight. Believe on Jesus. Let's move to a transformed attitude toward death. A transformed view of death that specifically Paul the Apostle had in the New Testament. If you have a Bible in front of you, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, 10. No worries, we're going to kind of skate over it. I would, I would encourage you, during this Advent season, read the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. If you want to be jazzed for seeing Jesus, Read 1 and 2 Corinthians. 
the anticipation of Paul and his zeal to see Christ is just all over the place. First and second Corinthians, consider that as your advent time in the word. Are you there? Second Corinthians chapter four. It's on page 965 in the Bible in front of you too. Uh, just real quick, this is the second letter to the Corinthians, obviously. It's a people that Paul loved. He had corrected strongly in the first letter. And in the second letter, it seems that people are attacking Paul's ministry. They're saying he's not quite cut out for this. He doesn't have the right papers. He doesn't have the right support. Who is this Paul fellow? And we don't like it when he doesn't say good things about us either. But Paul, earlier in chapter 3, says, listen, we have the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the new covenant. The old covenant, it binds you up in the law. It does not save. It says, you are sick with spiritual cancer, but shows no way to actually cure it. That's the old covenant. He says, we're ministers of the new covenant. The Spirit gives life. And you, Corinthians, you are my letter of support. The way God has worked in you shows that He is powerful and that He has used the gospel from my lips to give you life. So we come into 2 Corinthians 4, and I'll read it. Therefore, this is Paul writing, Timothy's at his side. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Listen to that. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who themselves are perishing, are dying. In their case, the God of this world, He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You hear that Paul says, we do not lose heart. What what is part of his transformed view of death? He does not lose heart. He has this ministry that is not about him, but it's about proclaiming Christ. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry in the body the death of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul's saying, we're constantly given over to death. That's part of the job description. I'm bringing an unpopular message of good news of Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven. It's foolishness to the Jews, 
and foolishness to the Gentiles. Everybody's hating us, but we're still bringing the gospel. And so he says, this is the thing. This is the thing. We're constantly given over to death for the sake of Jesus. We are these we are these jars of clay that could easily collapse. But you know what keeps us firm? You know what keeps us sound? The Spirit of God inside of us. There's not one time that we could be killed outside of God's allowance. We are invincible for the mercy, I'm sorry, for the ministry of the gospel. Invincible. There is a day that I will die, but until that day, I'm not going to die. So I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do until that day. Verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He doesn't lose heart because he's confident that he's going to be resurrected with Jesus and with the Corinthians. We're going to talk about that some more next week. Let's keep going. His second, we do not lose heart. Do you see how this transformed view of death is giving him confidence? So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You got those aches and pains? You got those feelings that death is at work in you? Some of you feel them with and have felt them with prognoses of death. You have cancer. You are HIV positive. You are, you are, you are. You are feeling, you are feeling the press of the curse of death on your body. But for those who are in Christ, did you hear what Paul said? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen are unseen are eternal. We are presently being prepared for glory greater than you and I can imagine. When Paul talks about more and more, in the Greek, it actually says hyperbole and hyperbole. You know what a hyperbole is? I'm so hungry I could eat a... Is anybody going to eat a horse for lunch this afternoon? No, nobody ever eats horse. Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't think anybody here is going to eat a horse. All right? That's hyperbole. That is making an outlandish, excessive statement for the sake of expressing deep truth. I'm hungry. In the Greek, it is hyperbole and hyperbole. Paul is saying this, the glory that is working in all of this is excessive upon excessive. When you weigh it out, it is a gnat dying on one side of the scale and a perpetual parade of elephants stampeding on the other. That is the work of the Spirit in those who are in Christ. So when you feel the dying of the gnat over here, 
know that what's actually happening, that is actually happening. What's actually happening is the Spirit is excessively upon excessively working in you. That is the truth. That is the truth. Paul starts to talk about this eternal weight of glory. Do you know what Paul was? He was a tent maker. And this language here is tent making language. It is how heavy is this fabric? Paul was saying, you know what? When we get to glory, we're going to have a tent that's heavy. We're going to have the best of the best. Actually, he's going to say even more than that in the next verses. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Weight of Glory. We should hardly dare to ask that any notice be taken of ourselves. Like We shouldn't be in it for our glory. He says, but in reality, we pine for it. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret that each of us carries. We don't feel like we're really known. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory, glory means good report with God. Acceptance by God response from God, acknowledgement by God, and welcome into the heart of the things of God. The door on which we have been knocking, pounding all our lives will be open at last. I think of Bill Goodman. When I think of not fearing death, I think of Bill Goodman who ever since his time coming into Edgewater probably seven years ago, Something like that. He's had what's called Dandy Walker disease. He's had it since he was a kid. It's just a disease where he grows tumors in his head. Most of you have never met Bill Goodman. I wonder when Bill Goodman is going to go to glory. I don't know. We thought it was going to be years ago. But Bill Goodman keeps showing up at our back door with Sherlock every once in a while, his little dog. And he keeps living. But he says, you know what? I'm not afraid of death. I go to my doctors and they think I'm insane because I tell them I'm not afraid of death. I belong to God. Jesus has saved me. I'm not afraid of death. Bring it on. I want to die. But the Lord keeps him here. He came to the office a couple weeks ago and he told me and Bill, you know the Rogers Park shooter? I'm going to get him. (laughs) Bill's arms are like this. But upon reflecting on what he said, do you know what the meaning of that is? I don't fear death. I could do the most outlandish thing. And Bill and I were chuckling because it was pretty outlandish. But he didn't fear death. If he saw that guy, he said, I'm going to take him down. Bill. And he wants to help other people. He has a love for this community, for this church. He can't be here most Sundays. He hasn't been here for a long time because he has seizures. Okay, Pray for Bill Goodman this week. If you know him, give him a call. 
chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, Paul was likely anticipating the destruction of his tent. We have a building from God. A house not made with hands, it's eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This gives you a little snapshot of what life beyond the curtain looks like for those who know Christ. Humans are body and soul, a unity. At death, we all know the body's in that coffin or the body has been cremated. That body is not going anywhere. Not yet. That soul is separated from the body. And that soul, the believing soul, goes straight to be with Jesus. A term for this could be the intermediate state. We're going to talk about the resurrection in the next couple of weeks. But there is this, there is this reality, there's this reality where we're not going to have the bodies that we have for a little while. We're, we're still waiting for that ultimate resurrection. I'm giving it away. That, that ultimate resurrection when we have resurrected bodies as Christ's body was resurrected. The Westminster Confession speaks in the same spirit, saying, at death, the souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. How does that happen? If you look at the transfiguration in the Gospels, Elijah and Moses showed up. They had bodies. The disciples recognized them. Jesus recognized them. Now you could say, well, maybe it's because Elijah was taken in a fiery chariot and Moses went to the top of the mountain and then he was no more. Maybe those are still in some sense their original bodies. We don't know. Erwin Lutzer says maybe it's that the soul is actually more physical than we actually consider. Maybe the soul is a more stuff than we give it credit for. So what is life going to be like on the other side of the veil? We don't know. It seems like we won't have our resurrection bodies yet, but it will still be a physical reality. Burkhoff says the future state of believers after death is greatly to be preferred to the present clearly affirmed by Paul. It is a state in which believers are truly alive and fully conscious, conscious, a state of rest and endless bliss. You don't have to worry that you're going to feel naked without a body once you go through the veil of death. You will be with Jesus and your reality will be real. It will be physical. It will be conscious. You're not going into soul sleep. You're also not going to purgatory. Can I say that? You're also not going to purgatory because purgatory, that arose in teaching in the Middle, in the middle Ages. 
And purgatory basically was a way to say, there's a way, there's a, there's a need for us to somehow get more grace. Make ourselves more meritorious. Earn it. Listen, if Jesus is the sole physician and He is the cure and He came to say, I can save you, there's no purpose for purgatory. Okay? There is one judgment. After death, there is one judgment. After, for the believer who steps through the veil of death, there will be Jesus. Verse 6, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. <laughs> he said, he said um, we do not lose heart. So we do not lose heart. Now he ups the ante a little bit. He says, so we are always of good courage. Not just that we don't lose heart. We're confident now, people. We're confident. We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, in this tent, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That was Paul's present experience at that point. He was walking by faith, not by sight. But he didn't count it as a disadvantage because faith in Christ is legit. This treasured jars of clay was being supported by Christ Himself. He would continue to walk in faith even though He was still at home in the body. Then he says it one more time. Yes, we are of good courage. So Paul does not lose heart twice and now he is of good courage. This is a transformed view of death. We are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We would rather that be the case. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Yes, we are of good courage. Paul said, I would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We hear echoes of that in Philippians 1.21 where he says, live is, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know what? Christians, brothers and sisters, we got to check ourselves a little bit. We often live maybe even primarily live, and I'll raise my hand on this too, as if to live is gain, but to die is Christ. We're like Hezekiah who wants a few more months of life because I, I can't, uh, death is coming, but I don't want to walk through that veil. No, Paul says, when the Lord transforms your view of death, you would rather be with Him than in this body. In verses 9-10, through 10, regardless of where we are, our aim is His pleasure. The actions done in the body are measurable and they matter. You know, in a gospel-centered church like this where we believe in full atonement, can it be that Jesus Christ would die for me? We, we can kind of skate through pretty easily saying, you know what? I'm forgiven. Praise God, I'm forgiven. What I do in this body doesn't really matter. At least not ultimately. In the context of death, in the context, in the context of the law of the Spirit that gives life, 
Paul very matter-of-factly says, we are all going to appear before Jesus at the judgment. Now, for those who are in Christ, we will ultimately be saved through the fire of judgment. But it does not mean that our acts, the things that we have done in the body, will not be considered and seen. We must consider how we use our lives, how we use our bodies, how we use our seasons, years, months, days, hours. What will they look like at the judgment seat? Even if Christ has atoned for our sin. We're not promised tomorrow. A good friend of my dad's who um, has been doing nursing home ministry with him, uh, he plays a cuatro and they go and do Spanish language nursing home ministry. Um, his name's Angel. He died of a massive heart attack last week. Just like that. Um, there's a young man named Antoine. I don't think he was ever at Phantom Ranch but he grew up on the west side, graduated from high school last year. Um, I think goes to one of the legacy churches, has been mentored through Grip Outreach for Youth. In the Austin neighborhood, three days ago, he was shot multiple times, killed. I looked it up on the Grip um, website. He was listed as one of the, their mentees. Antoine had been, and in case you get into your mind, in any way, some sort of stereotype of a black young man on the west side, Antoine had been to Ethiopia on a missions trip. Antoine had been faithfully discipled by one of the guys that is counseled at Phantom Ranch. Antoine was a loss in our view to this earth. Angel, his heart attack was a loss in our view to this earth. But do you know what? As soon as their heart stopped beating, and their souls separated from their bodies, Antoine and Angel were with Jesus. They were with the one who had come as the physician and the cure. He said, welcome home. You're now fully well. C.S. Lewis, again in The Weight of Glory, says, it is written that we shall all stand before Him shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and, almost, and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that judgment seat examination. Shall find approval. Shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son? It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory that our hearts can hardly sustain. But so it is. I would encourage us this morning to remember death. Remember death rightly. If you don't know Christ, remember that you will die in your sin unless you believe in Him. If you do know Christ, death is merely a veil. There's lots of other pain and goodbye and sadnesses that are, that are part of that experience, no doubt. But death itself is a thin veil on which Christ is waiting on the other side. 
But also, brothers and sisters, remember death and be kind and intentional gospel people. Be kind and intentional gospel people. Right a, a couple weeks ago in New York City, they had a citywide festival called Reimagine the End of Life. And they had different gatherings of millennials, probably not just millennials, but largely millennials, that were just starting to grapple with the idea of death. The author of this article said, it's, it's being said that whereas the sexual revolution happened in the 60s, people didn't really talk about sexuality before then. A similar wave might be coming in our culture regarding death. People don't talk about death. We're a relatively sanitized society. But at this conference or at this festival, they were starting to talk about death. Why do things always have to end? I've seen so much death or I haven't seen death and I'm scared of death. If indeed that is the case, would you consider remembering death with friends and family that don't yet know Christ? Ask them about death. Let that be an entrance way into the conversation to point them to the physician and the cure. Talk about death with your family, your extended family these holidays. I know family reunions can be so rutted. You just get into the same patterns every time you get together. Same old, same old. Do you remember death in the face of that same uncle? Or the annoying cousin or that estranged sibling? Could you remember death with them? Could you ask Jesus, Lord, through our conversation, invite yourself in? And remember the Mayo Clinic as your kind and intentional gospel people. Deep listening, empathy, generous acts, and gentle honesty. Do not lose heart. Be of good courage. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we want to see You. And we long for many others to see You too. Oh Spirit, would You do the wonderful work of awakening dead hearts to life. And Lord, if any of us are snoozing, would You awaken our hearts too. God, we are thankful for Your love and Your gentle, honest kindness with us. Please continue to make us more and more into a people that rightly reflect You. In your name, amen.